Hello and welcome to the final edition of the Garden Podcast for 2018. It may be the last one this year, but it actually is all focusing on the January 2019 issue. This series goes behind the scenes at the Royal Horticultural Society's magazine, The Garden, to bring you the stories behind the stories that are exciting the gardening world each month. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine, and today we're looking ahead to 2019 with a first glimpse inside the glossy pages of our January issue. We meet one of the RHS disease detectives from our plant pathology department and explore the beauty of winter ferns. Matthew Pottage, the curator of RHS Garden Wisley down in Surrey, has had a lifelong passion for these verdant, versatile and stately plants. In this month's magazine, he selects some of his favourite ferns and shares his knowledge about how and where to grow them. I called him to ask him why these plants have a special place in his heart and in his garden. Matt, you've written one of the key articles all about wintergreen ferns. What's the definition of a wintergreen fern and why do you think they're so special? They are a fern that still looks really presentable and essentially stays evergreen through the winter months. And many of them have a flush of fronds a bit later in the season than perhaps others. And you often have quite a a respectable display through the winter months. And even though the plant isn't really actively growing at that time, it still forms a lovely uh, part of the border or the container garden. I think there's something that's a little bit underused. So I was really pleased to write this for the garden and, and share my love of them with you. And anyone who's met you or seen you on social media will know that you're an immense plants person and a really passionate plantsman. Tell us, when did this affair with the ferns or this interest in them start? Uh, I don't know. I probably should have been born in Victorian times, you know, when they were into their conifers and ferns and displaying funny things in urns. I have a bit of a soft spot, I think, for a lot of evergreens. It's just something I'm drawn to. And, you know, I really like to see the interest and the warmth and the texture and colour that evergreens bring to the garden in winter. And only having a small little patio garden in my West London flat, it's quite important that things look good year round to me. And I've just always really appreciated how useful ferns can be. Many ferns, even though we know they'll go in shade, will take some sun if they're kept reliably watered. And will sit in pots quite respectably for years if they're just given a little bit of care an awareness of how much nutrient and some protection from vine weevil. So I think my love affair probably started, I don't know, five, six years ago when I started to go quite heavy into container gardening. Because, you know, they'll stay, many of them will stay at a respectable, manageable size in a pot too. And some of the espleniums, I think, which I was originally drawn to, some of the heart's tongue types, have all manner of interesting leaf shapes and lovely crested, tufted tips, some of the cultivars. They're beautiful in their own right, but they're quite easy to mix in with a a wider palette of plants. And when you're having a, creating a pot display, an arrangement of containers, you always need something fluffy and bubbly to put on the front edge, you know. Not everything could be tall or upright. You know, they're great for either dotting in among other things or being that front level, that lowest level. So I just find them incredibly useful. And then, like for most things with me, I find them quite addictive. And then suddenly you see them at an RHS show. And then you say, oh, I don't have that cultivar. Oh, I've not tried that in the collection before. You know how it is for any plantsman. 
We've got this beautiful photographic plate, as we call them, um, that was done at Wisley, and it shows all the um, variety of different, we've got 20 different selections on there. Tell me two or three of your favourites out of that plate. I think a real favourite, because it looks quite exotic, but it, again, it's quite easy to grow and quite straightforward, is probably the dry optimus Siboldii. It's one of those things that if it's in quite a bright condition, quite full sun conditions almost, actually, it's paler, more compact, more rigid, and it almost looks ever so slightly cycad-like. But then I've got it in real deep shade in my own garden, and the leaves are much longer, much darker green. But they've got a lovely leathery cardboardy thing going on, which I think is quite fun. And it just gives you that year-round texture and interest. Another plant that I kind of just wouldn't ever be without is Blechnum chilense. I didn't know it until I came to Wisley. I think it's beautiful. In a pot, it will stay fairly small, quite clump-like, quite rigid. Again, it looks a bit like a cycad almost. There is one called, I think, Blechnum cycadifolium, which is super. But Chilense on here, which is more available, is just reliable, straightforward. And in the open ground, if you have space to plant it in a border, you know, that can get quite large with ideal conditions. You can mix that with exotic plants, but you can also mix it with more of your traditional woodlanders like trilliums hostas so it's incredibly versatile too what i love about your passion for plants matt is that you are often on the side of the unsung heroes and i guess in a way ferns can be that especially through the summer months when there's more flower color or scent or texture to grab our attention and then they come into their four a bit more during winter but there's um, um, one in here isn't there that actually many people will probably see as a house plant rather than as a fern can you just tell us about that uh, the pellia yeah which is sometimes known as a button fern which has a really cute little rounded dark green leaf it was always big in, in the houseplant area. I remember as a kid, and I did used to actually have one uh, in my parents' kitchen in a really, really shady spot. But in a, a slightly more sheltered space outside, it can grow outside. It just needs a bit of protection for maybe the coldest weather. Or it's one of those plants you accept that you might enjoy it for eight to ten years, and when a really bad, nasty winter comes along, it disappears. But... You know, if you're in a cold part of the country, it's definitely a great plant for a north or east-facing windowsill. But it stays quite compact, but the leaves get longer. And when you have an older plant with lots of leaves in it, it almost looks like, like this little whirling image of all these little rounded leaves. It's just incredibly cute. And once you've seen it, and once you get to know it, it just doesn't look like any other fern. You know, if you think ferns are quite confusing and they all look similar, if you see this button fern, the pellia, you kind of know it. The other thing that really struck me with your article was just the reality that some of the plants that you featured aren't as tough as maybe they look. I know that for many years I grew a Woodwardia fimbriata, which is a lovely fern, and had it in shade and then lost it when it got past sort of minus five, minus six for a couple of days and I, I never got it back. Do you think that's a, an assumption that people just need to be reminded of, that these aren't always as tough as they look? Yeah, I think that's very true. And with something like a Woodwardia, often they are vigorous and if you buy them they've been in a pot for a while they're bursting with roots and normally rooting into the nursery beds you've got these huge enormous leaves and you think oh this is going to be a monster it's going to take over but you're right with a bit of a cold winter the whole thing's just gone so if it's a genus that you're maybe not so sure of there's also quite an unusual one in there called a coniogram which 
I got familiar with just a, about a year or so ago. And, you know, they aren't the toughest things in the world. They're well worth the effort. And it's part of the fun of gardening, isn't it? If it is something that's maybe a bit borderline, you spend a bit of time thinking, where am I going to place that? What could I get away with? Bottom of a wall or something, or you give it a nice pile of leaf mould around the crown just to give it a bit of extra protection. Interestingly, with a woodwardia we have on Battleston Hill here, we've got it on a bit of a terraced bank and the frost just rolls away from where it is and it survived there really well for quite a number of years. But I know if it was at the bottom of that hill area where the frost sits, I'm sure it would have gone. So give us a, a, a vision of your own garden, Matt. You, you say it's in West London. Have you got any um, ferns that you can describe to us? So a couple of the ferns, in about 10 or so of the ferns in the article are actually from my little back garden in Fulham. One which is slightly more tender but was tougher than you might imagine is the Asplenium nidus crispy wave, which I've had maybe about four or five years now. It's in quite a wide terracotta bowl and it is a big jumble of these little crinkly leaves that all stand about, I don't know, 20 to 30 centimetres tall. It's like a big bird's nest, as the common name would suggest, bird's nest fern. And that sits alongside a couple of pots of different polypodiums with the lovely crested leaves. The polypodium is the fern that produces its leaves, its fronds, much later in the summer months. So that always looks really fresh for the winter months. And then I basically have this like a tiered system of pots with the smallest things at the front. Many are raised up on upturned plant pots, I have an enormous begonia rex, which is quite a big feature plant there. Eventually it gets stepped up to some bigger shrubs in pots. I've got a big purple leaf pseudopanax, uh, quite a large edge worthier. And I've got a couple of more fancy urns, a couple of white cast iron urns out there, which I like to change things over with seasonally, just so there's a bit of flower interest in the garden too. And then a self-contained water feature sits in the middle of this craziness of pots. It's very sheltered, so I'm quite lucky that everything generally stays still. Although I remember last year when there was some storm in the winter, I have an enormous my pine in a pot and that blew over. It pulled a bit of the fence down that it was tied up to, and then it landed on top of all the pots, which just sent everything everywhere. And uh, that was. Did you lose anything? I lost a couple of things to the cold during that beast from the east thing ordeal, just other than broken pots and irritation. Everything was generally okay. So, Matt, you have this personal passion, which is uh, great and enthusiastic as ever. Have you been able to bring that along to your job as curator of RHS Garden Wisley? Well, you know what? I think it's opened my eyes to them more, Chris. And obviously, Wisley has an immense, amazing plant collection. So as soon as you start to be switched on to something, you start to notice it. And in Oakwood, which was formerly known as a wild garden, there are actually a couple of really great patches of polypodiums, two cultivars with interesting, slightly crustated leaves, and they're quite big patches. And I've been discussing with the team the potential use of some of those polypodiums on the winter walk, because they're great ground cover, and like I said, they look fresh and interesting for the winter months. And within our alpine collection, we do have some interesting potted ferns and the pellia has always existed in the glass house within the collections there and does very well. So there's always both on Battleston Hill and Oakwood there is a good range of wintergreen ferns to be seen. I haven't been doing any testing with any of the Asplenium nidus types. I don't know if it would be just a bit too cold for those. And I would love to get some more woodwardias going. I was actually mentioning to one of the team about trying some on more of the shadier parts of the rock garden. Because again, with that kind of 
raised bank-like elevation. I think they look most dramatic. So for people who see the article, they can be tempted and tasted by the beautiful photography and your your very sound words, of course. But if you were going to recommend um, someone to go and buy a plant as a present, maybe for Christmas or just out of interest at this time of year, is there one that you'd like to recommend? I think it would probably be one of the polypodiums, Chris, because they're quite easily available and they are really tough. And even if we have a really, really horrible dry summer, they have the ability to cast and curl up their leaves, uh, their fronds, and they still regenerate quite easily. They are reliably hardy. Even in shallow soil, they're quite good. You even see them growing on walls. And in the open ground, they're generally trouble-free. And they're also a really cute little pot plant as well. And there's quite a few of them out there. So I think if somebody wanted a really easy start, go for that. But if you had a big space with really rich, deep soil, with good shade, go for the Blecknum chilensi because it'll just bring you brilliant, really exciting results. Matthew Pottage. You can read his article on winter green ferns, complete with beautiful colour photographic plates in the January edition of The Garden. The RHS magazine is just one of many benefits of RHS membership, so why not join? Our membership also makes a perfect Christmas present for any garden-loving friend. All the details are on the RHS website. As editor, I'm currently signing off the last few pages of the January issue, uh, which will be going to the printers any day now and then should be arriving on your doormat in a week or two. There's plenty in this issue and I really hope that people enjoy it because some people in January can think the gardens go a bit quiet and there's no point getting out there. I think the opposite. Get out, get some fresh air, look at the lovely detail, smell the unusual plants, look at the colour, look at the sky and actually get out into your January garden. One garden that's really caught my eye this issue is a garden down in Surrey that's been designed and the designer has used a lot of heathers. Now heathers most people will know but actually they've been pretty underrated in the last few years and actually what the designer's managed to do is actually bring them to life. She's planted them in these beautiful sort of drifts and on sloping ground so that when you're out there in your December or January or February garden and you're looking around you can see the colour and the vibrancy and the texture of these flowering heathers and they add a real dimension to the garden so it's lovely to see that in a really well laid out garden. Another feature is about the birds in our garden's outdoor spaces. Which birds have left us to go to warmer climes and which birds are actually leaving their colder climes to come to our warmer climes. It's a great little piece and it just tells you about if you're looking outside your window what birds you might be seeing or witnessing on your bird feeder. One of the really exciting bits of this issue is the news that at last we can tell members that actually we're going to be changing the wrap of the way the garden is sent to people. As we all know, plastics has been a huge issue in 2018, and rightly so. And we've done a huge amount of work behind the scenes to see how can we change the way that the garden magazine is delivered. We go to more than 400,000 different homes in the country and the worldwide. So actually our delivery and our scale is actually pretty big for a magazine. So we've had to try a few different options. And I'm really delighted to to say that from our March issue, March 2019, we'll be able to send the magazine out in a paper wrapping. And the benefit of this is that it can be recycled at your normal doorstep recycling. And so you can just open your magazine and all of the plastics issue will reduce. Um, this is new technology. It's something that hasn't been done on a magazine of any similar scale in the UK before. So we really are trying to lead from the front on this. And I really hope that it'll meet with um, a positive outcome for members. Uh, and in the January issue, I explain a bit why we've done that and uh, what the benefits will be.
Another one of the articles is the winter walk at Wisley. Uh, and winter walks are becoming increasingly popular, and rightly so, because you can get the scent, the texture, the detail of the plants that give their all at this time of the year. And they're really valuable for when you're walking around a space. You want to be uplifted a little bit, and actually a winter walk at the RHS gardens or any of the gardens around the UK are really important and valuable uh, for interest at this time of year. Talking of winter walks, there's a lovely photo in this issue of the foliage garden in Rosemore, in our garden in North Devon. And this is a beautiful winter scene of the foliage garden. And when the podcast team were down there recently, they caught up with curator Jonathan Webster to talk to him about his passion for the foliage garden and what makes it really special. The foliage garden is a garden room which works the whole year. It's fantastic. It's got lots of different foliage from evergreens, deciduous plants. And one of the key points of the structure within the gardens, we've got pleached hornbeam, a beautiful trained sorbus uh, tibetica, white beam. And you've got some really statuesque conifers, which in winter really add drama. So we've got one which is a champion tree, which is chamisoparis lawsoniana imbricata pendula. It's this beautiful, graceful, weeping conifer. It always reminds me of a person in the wind. It just sort of uh, flexes and moves. It's a lovely spot. It's very simple. It's just literally different colours of foliage. So you've got different hues of green, formiums. There's one called yellow wave, which has got really dramatic variegated leaves. So it's just simple. There's no mass flowers here. So it's just that diversity of foliage and textures and hues which really work in there. I suppose one of the hardest things to get is that all year round structure, especially in the winter. So when you look at a garden in winter, you need to just make sure that you've got things which are putting the the whole structure together because obviously all your herbaceous goes flat, deciduous trees lose their leaves. So if you've got uh, pruned plant forms, that gives you that structure which then pulls everything else together. Jonathan Webster from Rosemore in North Devon. And if you want to visit Rosemore and see the beautiful glow illuminations, then you've got until the 5th of January to see them. And finally, a visit to our very own CSI team. Who thought I'd ever be saying that in a gardening podcast? But the plant pathologists we have at the RHS, they reside in specialist laboratories at Wisley. The team worked tirelessly to identify new disease threats to the UK's plants and gardens, to alert gardeners and to help develop new prevention and treatment methods. Jassy Draculich is a key member of the team and in this month's magazine gives readers insight into the vital research she and the team undertake. I spoke to her on the phone the other day about her role and the scientific life of the plant pathologist. Jassy, you're one of my colleagues down in RHS Garden, Wisley, in Surrey, part of the RHS team, and we profile your work in the January issue of The Garden. Tell me, what is a plant pathologist and why do we need them? A plant pathologist is a scientist that works on plant disease, and my job at the RHS is to carry out research into diseases which are relevant to gardeners, but also we help with the advice service. So we diagnose the diseases that gardeners send us samples of and we tell them how to manage it. So yeah, we need to understand these diseases and development management protocols. And that's really what my job is all about. So development management protocol, what does that mean from a layman gardener's point of view? So there's different approaches you can take to managing the diseases in your garden. We will 
first of all, advise you to change anything you can which, in terms of cultural control. So that's how you plant things, how you water them, where they're positioned and what they're planted next to, tidying up dead leaves and the sources of infection. And then after you've kind of removed all the stresses and all the possible reasons which could be worsening your disease situation, then and only then would we ever lead you to saying maybe you should apply some chemicals if there are chemicals that could help with your disease. So we're talking about fungicides for most of the diseases that you'd see in a garden. So this is quite a change for the RHS and it's something obviously in my role that I've seen over the last few years. We've moved away from that um, implied reach for a fungicide or herbicide or something or some chemical-based treatment to actually much more of a cultural approach. So this is something I'm, I'm sure that you support. Certainly. The issue with fungicides is that often they're overused and this will lead to the evolution of resistance within the fungal populations and therefore over time we will have less of these effective mechanisms to control when we really need to control disease. So if things are used, like with um, the misuse of antibiotics, you develop antibiotic resistance. And so like if we need these fungicides to protect our valuable crops and we're overusing them in other circumstances, you'll just evolve resistance to them and then we'll no longer have these tools to use them when it's most valuable to do so. This is really interesting. So actually, because I think some gardeners can just think what they do in their garden stays within their garden fences and it doesn't really affect the bigger picture. We know that people understand that differently for wildlife, that gardens can be a big part of a wildlife matrix. But actually what you're saying is that even if we decide to overspray our roses or pour some um, chemicals on something to get rid of a weed or something, that actually that is part of a bigger environmental holistic view that you, that you take as a plant pathologist. Definitely. I mean, obviously pathogens can be specific to their hosts but certain pathogens have got a very broad host range so depending on what you're looking at will depend on whether that fungicide resistance could then have an impact on a really valuable crop the diseases you'll be controlling in your garden won't be the same as those that are affecting wheat yields however you will also have the other impact in terms of I say the holistic view of a garden that when you apply a chemical to it it's non-target often so you won't just be targeting one thing and like if you spray for a herbicide for one specific weed you could be killing off other things that could have other benefits to your garden you could be killing off multiple fungi when you're spraying for your pest which could be beneficially impacting on that wider ecology of the microbes certainly if you don't want to mess with the balance too much. Generally, try and keep things and preserve them as they are without having heavy-handed tactics to try and get rid of things where possible. So, Jessie, what can gardeners do to help plant pathologists? Well, firstly, I'd say monitoring your gardens, as you already do, is one really useful step in terms of being able to control disease. If you want to control disease in a more sustainable way, you want to tackle things early rather than waiting until they get out of control and then needing to resort to those chemicals in order to control the diseases that you have present. But also the research that we're engaged in can often really benefit from having that gardener's input. So last year at the RHS, we had the honey fungus hunt. That was a citizen science survey asking people to take photographs of honey fungus mushrooms, send them in and also provide information about how the disease has affected them. There's lots and lots of citizen science projects out there, but those eyes on the ground, keeping your eyes out and seeing when these things change, that is a huge resource that scientists can draw from. We have an increasing threat from invasive diseases. So being familiar with what looks healthy and what looks unhealthy will help people report signs of things that they're alarmed by and telling us about them, then we can investigate them further. 
So you see it really as a big sort of circular benefit, really, the fact that we're engaging people, our members and non-members, to feedback into live science projects. You learn from it, you understand people's habits and, and their understanding. That informs our advice and the information we give out in magazines and books and the website. And then that helps improve gardeners' ability to understand and, and look after their plants. So it really is a big beneficial circle here. Certainly. Um, we need to disseminate the research findings that we have and they need to be relevant they need to have an application all of the work we do here in our department is looking at garden specific problems as well but then yeah once gardeners have internalized that information and are carrying it out understanding whether they're actually doing that or not is really important so for instance with honey fungus another big finding from this project was that people don't tend to dig out the stumps very often so now i'd like to look at that in future and understand that better and see if we can come up with a more realistic piece of advice for people who want to leave that stump in the ground or at least give them some kind of expectation as to what will happen in their garden if they do one of the things we cover a lot in the news pages of The Garden magazine is about plant health and pests and diseases. And there's quite a lot of doom-laden projections about what's coming into the country or what might be coming in in a few years' time. From plant diseases generally, what do you see as some of the big challenges that we need to be aware of? Certainly the biggest threat to UK gardens at the moment is Xylella fastidiosa. The plant health team here are upping the ante in terms of how we are trying to crack down on preventing import of those high-risk hosts which could bring Xylella into the country. We've improved our policies in terms of our plant health and biosecurity in the RHS shows and in terms of gardens, imports of semi-mature trees, we've got improved quarantine procedures that will have to be carried out. If there are any symptoms that emerge in that quarantine period, we can prevent that being taken into a garden where that bacteria could then establish itself. In the profile of your work, Jassy, it's really just about plant health generally um, and that healthy happy plants are the ones that actually are stronger and more defensible against pests and diseases is that something that you you feel is, is a really important message we need to get to members i really really do in terms of not just sustainability for reducing chemical use but just in terms of having like a pleasant garden if you pay attention to putting the right plant in the right place, you monitor for signs of stress, give it that TLC, give it a mulch, give it a feed, resilient, happy plants will be able to defend themselves better against pests and pathogens. And it's just a good strategy. Take care of your garden and think about it carefully, and then you'll have fewer issues from diseases. Jessie Draculich. You can read her article in the January edition of The Garden. Well, that's all we've got time for. We'll be back with another edition of the Garden Podcast next year. When we'll be looking at the February issue, we'll be having an update on tomato blight, an article with beautiful photos all about succulents growing really happily in a Cornwall garden, and also a common piece from a young nurseryman who's really challenging us to think what is sold and bought at garden centres. Until then, from me, Chris Young, the podcast team, and everyone here at Peterborough, Merry Christmas, and have a very happy Gardening New Year. Yeah.